Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. The first time I encountered Malik uh, was with the, the Thin Red Line. Uh, so I was 12 years old, I think, when it came out in 98. And I went to see Saving Private Ryan in theaters, and I didn't see the Thin Red Line. I rented it later, I think, on VHS or DVD. That was the first film of his I saw, and I loved that film. I had read the novel. Uh, when I was young, I was really interested in military history. So I'd read the James Jones novel, which the film is based on. And uh, yeah, love the movie. And I was sort of taken by the fact that it was an anti-war film in a way, but it was a very kind of unconventional anti-war film from the perspective of Hollywood, because I didn't really see it to be criticizing war from a strictly political perspective. And so I could pick up on these this sort of mysterious metaphysical dimension of that film, which really intrigued me. And then years later, uh, the second film of Malik that I uh, watched was uh, The Tree of Life, which I saw in theaters. And it was then that I realized that Malik was this fabulous director who I had been neglecting. And I went back and I rewatched all of his films and I love them equally. And uh, around this time, I was studying philosophy at Rice University and I had an interest in film from a philosophical perspective. And I realized, well, Malik is in some regard, you might think, the philosophical director par excellence. 
And so then I wanted to see, well, what's been written about Malik? And then I was blown away to find out that actually people had been writing about him at that point for decades, including the volume that you mentioned, which uh, I read and really much enjoyed. Uh, there were others who had been writing on Malik, uh, a Kierkegaard scholar in the UK, George Pattison, had written an essay on uh, on Malik. And also uh, Simon Critchley had written on Malik as well, uh, looking at Malik's work from the perspective of Heidegger. And then more recently, there's been a, a slew of works on Malik written by people who are uh, interested in film studies. So there's a book by Stephen Riven that came out a number of years ago. And then probably the most prolific and notable Malik scholar would be Robert Sinnerbrink, who released, a, I think, fantastic monograph on Malik a few years ago. It's really interesting to hear your perspective in terms of coming to it. For my age group, we had Malik as this sort of mysterious sort of entity. And I, I went to see The Thin Red Line in the theatres when I guess I would have been in my mid-20s and I would have been... I would have been in Liverpool and and having already seen Days of Heaven and so so really approaching it as this is what's he like after all these years. And bizarrely, Alex Cox, the director of Repo Man, was sitting in front of me, which I didn't know until the lights went up and I was walking out. And Alex Cox used to present a show called Movie Drone, which was basically on the BBC, the British show, and he would basically just introduce cult films. I remember he Badlands was one of those films. And so he's so he has a very distinctive voice. And he's walking out and he's saying, he's criticizing the haircuts. He's criticizing Sean Penn's haircut. It's like, ah, this is what, 1940, what, 1950, what, 1960, what? Um, and I was just thinking, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> Recently, I emailed Alex Cox and I said, uh, I didn't know him then at all. I mean, I knew him as a person on TV and as a film director, I admired. So I, I emailed him and just said, I grabbed, I don't know how I got his email address, but I, I, I sent off and uh, and I said, look, I remember you coming out of Thin Red Line um, and making this comment, but you had like helicopters in Walker. You had, which was set in the, <laughs> the early you know, late 19th century and you have all these and he was like oh yeah yeah I, I'm a hypocrite I know I know but he was uh he, he got back to me and told me what he thought about the whole thing it was it was really interesting um sorry that was a big digression I didn't, didn't mean to get into that but um uh yeah so you you said you were uh, studying philosophy at university and um and this is very much the the basis of the book the anthology that you've edited and you write the introduction to of course obviously the introduction of this this combination of philosophy and and malik has been encouraged a bit by his biography as well right by by what maybe you could say something about his background sure as listeners are i'm sure aware malik was born in ottawa illinois on november 30th 1943 to uh, i think it's emil and irene who are uh, of lebanese and assyrian descent he has two younger brothers uh chris and larry uh, one of whom uh died in the 60s by an apparent suicide and ended up i think forming the basis of uh the character R.L., one of the brothers in, in the Tree of Life. Uh, Malik attended a boarding school in Austin while his family was living in Oklahoma. And then after that, he attended Harvard, where he studied philosophy under a very influential and prominent uh, philosophical figure at the time, Stanley Cavell, who, of course, is very well known for his work in film. After Malik finished at Harvard, he 
earned a Rhodes Scholarship to Oxford. So he was at Modlin College. And it was there that he was studying under uh, Gilbert Ryle. Now, Ryle was a force at Oxford at the time. Uh, in, in the 50s and into the 60s when Malik was there, the prevailing dominant philosophical school at the time in Oxford was what was called ordinary language philosophy. And this was sort of constitutive of what had at that point come to be called analytic philosophy, which originated earlier in the century with figures such as Bertrand Russell and, and Wittgenstein. And the idea behind ordinary language philosophy, which included these figures uh, like J.L. Austin and, and P.F. Strassen, was that many of the philosophical problems that have vexed thinkers throughout the centuries are in some way the product of uh of, of the abuse of language. The idea is that philosophers take words from their ordinary everyday context, and when they transport them into a, a philosophical context, they tie themselves up in unnecessary puzzles. And so the idea was that, well, maybe we can actually uh, resolve some of these longstanding metaphysical and ethical philosophical questions by, in effect, dissolving them and showing that they're not really questions. We're just victims of the illusion that there's a question where there really isn't one. And this was more or less Ryle's approach to philosophy, particularly when it came to the, the issue of the philosophy of mind. So I think it was in 1949, Ryle had published a book called The Concept of Mind. And there, Ryle is critiquing uh, the dualism of Rene Descartes. And Ryle wanted to make the claim that what makes human behavior, human action meaningful, isn't actually the conscious thinking of an agent, but rather the sort of social and embodied context in which these actions occur. Now, when Malik came to Oxford, he was studying under Ryle. And from what I understand, the, the apocryphal story is that Ryle uh, didn't like what Malik was up to philosophically. Uh, uh, Malik wanted to write a thesis on Kierkegaard and Heidegger and Wittgenstein, and Ryle didn't like this because Malik apparently didn't like ordinary language philosophy. He thought that philosophy did have its own set of genuine problems and that there were genuine philosophical questions, which, although contentious, in principle admitted of answers. So there was a real debate to be had here. There was such a thing as philosophical inquiry not just the mere linguistic analysis of our concepts, for example. So there was a falling out. Malik didn't want to write whatever presumably Ryle wanted him to write, and so he left Oxford. And then he bounced around for a brief period working as a freelance journalist, I think. And he published some pieces with like Newsweek and Life magazine. And uh, then he ended up at AFI. So the, the the hypothesis that people who approach Malik from a philosophical perspective have is that Malik potentially was drawn to film because he saw film as a medium for whatever particular reason, which was conducive to working out the kind of philosophical questions that he hadn't been able to work out when he was at Oxford. At least that might be part of his motivation for having gotten into film to begin with. That's a, that's a fascinating um, idea as well of um, the specific historical moment of, in philosophy at that period, because you had Ryle in Oxford. You, I mean, even even in Harvard, you know, Cavell, to my limited understanding, was something of an outlier. He wasn't like uh, 
a traditional uh he wasn't he had a very esoteric tastes he was the first person to be writing about things like cinema and philosophy in that in america at least you know gills deleuze and other people would come bergson had already been doing it to some degree in france but so um so yeah uh it, it is it, I, th I think there is that element that not only was ryle um not sympathetic to Malik's sort of interests, but to some degree, so was the general philosophical mainstream at, at that point, that what he wanted to look at just wasn't being looked at with the same sense of importance or urgency. That's exactly right. And, and I mean, part of it too is that uh, aesthetics has always gotten short, short, short thrift, right? So th there's a tendency even today among analytic philosophers to think that the most primal, basic, fundamental questions of philosophy generally lie in metaphysics. But when they ask these metaphysical questions, they sort of sideline aesthetics, right? And so this, this goes for film, not just the other arts, such as painting and music. I mean, the interesting thing about Cavell, which you note rightly, is that Cavell was, a way, in a way, a bit of an outsider. But he was sort of begrudgingly ex respected by his colleagues who who recognized that even if they didn't think highly of the kind of philosophy he was doing, he was clearly a pioneer in whatever that was. Mm. Uh, I mean, the same thing in a way has to do with uh, with Heidegger and the reception of Heidegger in the Anglophone world in a way sort of parallels, I think, or you could argue Malik's own work as a as as a as a filmmaker. So when Malik came back to the states, he taught for a time at MIT, and it was there that his sort of protege, or sorry, his mentor was Hubert Dreyfus. And Hubert Dreyfus was a uh, went on to be a professor of philosophy at the University of Berkeley, and Dreyfus basically introduced Heideggerian philosophy to to the states, and he went on to mentor a number of professors who have gone on to to have really successful careers and so for like the last 30 or 40 years of heidegger scholarship in the states has been influenced by dreyfus uh with whom malik was working and then malik of course went on to translate a work of heidegger's uh the essence of reasons which came out with northwestern press in 69 and i've read accounts according to which um malik actually visited and met with heidegger so there's a there's a sort of heavy Heideggerian influence in Malik's work, which I think is apparent even as early as films, Badlands and Days of Heaven, and then a, a, a sort of recurs again, I think, notably in his most recent film, A Hidden Life. Um, so as Heidegger is someone who's always influenced Malik. The early Heidegger uh, scholarship and film studies and, 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 and philosophy of film really accentuated that Heideggerian influence. And as the Malik scholarship has evolved, people have sort of come to question whether or not uh, it makes sense to consider Malik a Heideggerian director. That's probably an oversimplification, but there's certainly a sense in which Heidegger is very, very influential for, for Malik's vision as a, as a filmmaker, I think. Yeah, there's two things I want to come back to you with this. Uh, one is going to be a little bit of a sort of pushback and the other is going to be uh well okay let me do the first one first because it's it's mm -hmm. it's it's will make more sense to the listeners as well so the first first thing is just for our listeners who whose heidegger might be a little bit rusty what 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 sort of i mean i'm not asking you to summarize 
<laughs> the works of Martin Heidegger. But what sort of thing would appeal? What what would he, uh, you know? What would a Heideggerian filmmaker look like? What's the what what is coming out of those concepts which which you can portray on on screen? So to understand what may have drawn Malik's eye to Heidegger, both as a, as a philosopher himself prior to his foray into film, and then as a director. It's. It, I think it's. It's necessary to have some sense of the philosophical tradition in which Heidegger himself was working. So Heidegger is is a phenomenologist, and phenomenology is a is a philosophical movement or school that was founded in the early twentieth century by Edmund Husserl, who was Heidegger's uh, uh, teacher. And Husserl's idea was that phenomenology was supposed to be a first person reflective inquiry into the fundamental structures of consciousness. In other words, uh, what is it that makes a meaningful encounter with the world possible? And so uh, Heidegger learns from Husserl and borrows quite heavily from Husserl. But then in the 20s, uh, with the publication of Being in Time in 1927, which Heidegger dedicates to Husserl, he sort of, in a way, breaks with Husserl. So scholars have made a lot about, well, what is it about Heidegger's version of phenomenology that distinguishes it from Husserl's? And what is it about Heidegger's phenomenology that sort of makes it a big move in the history of philosophy? And the fundamental notion in Heideggerian philosophy is this, this question of being, or the question of the meaning of being. And Heidegger thinks that this is the, the philosophical question par excellence. Phenomenology, philosophy is what he calls ontology, the science of being. And Heidegger thinks that what makes human beings unique, apart from all other creatures in the, in the known world, is that we are beings for whom our, our own being is at issue or at stake. In other words, he thinks that human beings essentially and necessarily and fundamentally are trying to work out for themselves the meaning of what it means to be the being that they are. But we are the atoms that think about atoms. Uh... Exactly, except one of the things that that, that makes uh, phenomenology peculiar is that it's not naturalistic. In other words, it rejects the idea that the natural sciences have the first or final word on the nature of reality, much less uh, human existence. So this is where you get the Heideggerian notion of, of the world or worldhood. Uh, Husserl had called it uh, the life world, the world of everyday experience, uh, the world before it's considered from a scientific or reductionistic perspective. And so Heidegger, he, he, his term for the human being is Dasein. And he says that the human being's mode of being or kind of being is what he calls care. And it's in virtue of Dasein uh, having care or being a concerned being with its own being that it opens a world, a world of meaning where it negotiates its surroundings in a way where it's always trying to live up to a certain standard or a certain kind of role that's constitutive of what it is it's doing, being a teacher, being a husband, being a fireman, whatever that may be. So there's a, according to Heidegger, a kind of fundamental unsettledness about the nature of human existence because there's no ultimate or final answer to what it means to be who you are apart from what it is you're trying to be, right? And I think this is something that interests Malik, because if you look at his early films, Badlands and Days of Heaven, 
he's, I think, trying to get at this sort of fundamental uncanniness or unsettledness that he finds in the world, that human beings, in a sense, have an ambivalent relationship to nature, right? There's a sort of yearning to fit into nature, but also a sense in which we don't belong to nature. Human beings are somehow apart or distinguished from nature. And then so too with uh, human social relations or the social milieu. Uh, if you look at many of Malik's characters uh, in Badlands and, and, and Days of Heaven, they don't fit in, right? They're struggling to make sense of their existence and they feel alienated in some way or another, whether it's because of uh, labor conditions, material conditions, familial situations or what have you. And so I think Malik is drawn to Heidegger for this reason. He sees that the Heideggerian view about the nature of human existence as being, in a sense, a search or a quest for individual meaning, a quest for individual meaning that works itself out through the particular historical, social milieu in which it finds itself, is amenable to film. And you can capture this in film, and you can portray that struggle and show that struggle, maybe in a way that uh, other art, uh, artistic media can't. Okay, so that that's a brilliant explanation, and and it's it clarifies it clarifies a lot of what people have been talking about, and and what what I was reading about in in the essays in your anthology, which I should just write. At the, I should have said this at the top. It's called "Life Above the Clouds: Philosophy in the Films of Terence Malick." Just so, uh, um, but I'll put a link in the show notes and everything for everybody who wants to grab a copy. The caveat I had uh, is this, which is. Or the, or the pushback, if you like, is that Malik's university, you know, he, he, he's aborted MPhil that he's trying to do at, at Oxford and his, uh, and his academic work is a really sort of early stage in his life. And he's doing it for a, 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 sh a relatively short period. Although, I mean, I've done a PhD and I did my PhD for longer than he, he's worked on, he worked on Heidegger academically. And I haven't read much Shelley since because <laughs> you know, there is also this thing that you do something you're interested in it you study it and then you sort of like it it, it dries up and you and you move on to to other things so i i just wonder of uh, i i just wonder if that this heidegger specifically heideggerian sort of thrust hasn't been a little bit overplayed perhaps in the you know in the critical community let's say in the, specifically the academic community because and we can talk about this in a moment as well the wider audience is obviously not walking in to Tree of Life thinking, okay, I'm looking forward to some Heidegger. <laughs> right. So I, 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 in fact, I entirely agree that it was probably ham-fisted or over, uh, overstated to say that Heidegger is as influential on Malik as he is. Heidegger is certainly there, especially if one has read Heidegger. Um, I think you would see the Heideggerian resonance in Malik's films, even if you didn't know his personal intellectual biography. That said, um, there are so many other influences that one might extract from a Malik film. In fact, though, this is kind of a methodological question. Maybe we can discuss later. But as, as a matter of interpretation, interpreting a film, there's always the concern that one might import sort of uh, philosophical figures or, or theories into the film that really aren't there. Right. So this is what makes, I think, Malik uh, a challenging director to interpret is that knowing his intellectual and philosophical sophistication it's tempting to look for philosophical figures and, and theses and influences because you presume they should be there. On the other hand, you want to let the film speak for itself, as it were, without imposing 
some sort of abstract uh, framework upon it. Just to kind of finalize the thought maybe about Heidegger, his most recent film, A Hidden Life, you might interpret it or see it in a way, not entirely, but uh, in a way as a repudiation of Heidegger, or at least maybe even Heidegger's early influence on Malick. And the reason has to do with uh, Heidegger's involvement in Nazism, which has never been any secret. I mean, Heidegger scholars have known this. I mean, Heidegger was banned from the university after the war. Uh, his reputation was more or less refurbished by some of his students like Hannah Arendt. And then by the time Heidegger was uh, studied in the States, people just sort of set that question aside. And then over the last 10 or 20 years, there's been a number of books that have emerged that are exploring this question of the extent to which Heidegger's philosophy is, is related to his political co commitments with Nazism. So uh, A Hidden Life, telling the story of a conscientious, uh, conscientious objector who refuses to swear an oath to Hitler is an interesting choice of topic for, um, for, for Malik. You could see it in a way as sort of being a criticism of Heideggerian philosophy. And, 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 and some have noted that Robert Sinderbrink, I think, and, and, and others as well, that uh, it looks to me like Kierkegaard becomes a larger influence on Malick's films, beginning with the, the so-called weightless trilogy with To the Wonder. I've watched A Hidden Life two nights ago, so I, I've got it. It's very fresh in my head. I mean, one of the things that I felt while I was watching that was a feeling that there was going back to aesthetics, which you talked about earlier as well, a sense that he was kind of preoccupied and worried that his aesthetics might have might align or overlap with fascist aesthetics in the sense that, you know, you have those clips from, I think it's Len Lenny Reifenstahl's uh, Triumph of the Will right at the very beginning. Uh, they have the same sort of movement. They, 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 they the, the, the way it's edited, it's not just that, it's not just that, uh, you know, you've got light coming in shafts and you've got sort of, but the actual way the film has been edited is, is very, is obviously been edited by, Malik's own editorial team as part of the film, and it's consistent with the grammar of the of the film. And so there seems to be this worry that what do I do with this guy who's very much connected to nature and the mountains and and some uh, and, and an atmosphere which is very much redolent with Aryan vibes, <laughs> you know? And I love my Wagner. What do I do with my Wagner? And yeah, you know, thank God Twitter wasn't around when Martin Heidegger was. Uh, was... Well, one thing though, that I think you, you see throughout Malik's work, we, beginning with the, the first film of his, which we had mentioned, which was the Thin Red Line after the 20 year hiatus, but from the very beginning with Badlands onto Days of Heaven through the Thin Red Line, uh, and then all the way up to A Hidden Life is this use of voiceover. Mm. Which, you know, of course, I'd be interested to hear what your take on what, what the purpose of that is. But one thing it does is that it I see Malik as, in a way, rejecting a number of sort of commonplaces in, in film theory, but also in philosophy. So to go back to Ryle, Ryle's idea, right, was that he was going to he was going to exercise the mind of this Cartesian ghost and that everything was going to be external in the world, as it were, social. Malik pushes back against this. He's very interested in exploring interiority, the secrets of the heart, what people are really thinking, things about themselves that fundamentally define their identity in a way in which can't be worked out publicly for various reasons. Um, and this is a tension that I think Malik has always been interested in exploring is this, this sense in which human beings are alienated from their surroundings and that 
who they are or what they're trying to be is, is in a way being thwarted by broad, broader uh, social or political forces. But the interesting thing about what Malik does is that he never tells a sort of utopian story on which politics is going to be humanity's salvation. In fact, he always seems to try to, I think, undercut that idea. And you see this, I think, again, in, in The Hidden Life, the idea that, uh, that, that, that politics is going to somehow resolve this fundamental human conundrum about what it means to be human or about how humans ought best to live. He, I think he's he's showing what he takes to be the inherent danger of that lure by showing what 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 unfolded with Nazism, and and this also I think has to do with the the interest in the interiority of Franz and the conscience that somehow uh, human beings are more than their social and political milieu, and that there's a sort of danger in kind of collectivism or this idea that human beings should be deriving their ultimate sense of who they are from their historical socio-political uh, surroundings yeah i i would i would go with that i definitely feel the i think one of the problems with the voiceover from a critical point of view and in terms of the critical community is that it's 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 become oversimplified every time you read a review of malik the the latest response is always oh voiceovers whispery <laughs> this and whispery that and you know yada 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 but he's actually the voiceovers work extremely differently in every film that they really mm -hmm. they really change and even in one film they change in the sense that you know nick nolte's voiceover shows a very clear difference between the private and the public man you know the voiceover is exactly. definitely his internal monologue saying fuck this shit i hate myself i hate the world i hate what i'm doing but i'm going to do it you know i, I mean what is, I, what he says like i'm like a tree dying i think it's like, what, he, he, yeah, he, yeah. he just he talks untold buckets of shit I've had to drink to get mm -hmm. to get here. And it's just like, mm -hmm. there's nothing in his character and his performance. Oh, I mean, there is stuff in his performance, which kind of intimates that, but that, that voiceover gives you something which is so much different from just, you know, the role of a conventional voiceover. And, and if you go forward to the new world, you have like, especially the extended cut of the new world, you have John Smith saying, give, having two voiceovers at the same time. Sort of at one point, he's actually talking about, we were going up the river and, and it's sort of like his public voiceover, his sort of, uh, you know, reporting back to the King voiceover. And then underneath that, there's another voiceover going, when will I see her again? Uh, should I even go and see her? I've betrayed her, you know, and, and, that's just remarkable, you know. And again, with a hidden life, the voiceovers are the letters. So it's it's not really an interiority. It, it's it's the interiority of a relationship. I'd have to think more about it, and I want to commit myself to a view that someone will just immediately produce a counterexample. So forgive me if, if 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 this doesn't make sense. But just thinking about it off the top of my head, it seems to me because I was thinking about your your point about the new world and. Uh, John Smith is sort of bifurcation between, on the one hand, his sort of inner life, what's really what he really cares about, and on the other hand, his sort of public performative role. Well, it seems to me, right, perhaps the only significant character in Malick's works that reconciles this tension, in other words, actually becomes who he is, in the sense of his inner struggle actually being exhibited and some in some sense fulfilled in the world, is Franz, right? I mean, of course, he dies. But this is what Franz, in a way, wills. He becomes who he is, who he wants to be. Uh, he, he, in other words, he doesn't fake it. 
Mm -hmm. right? He's not pretending. He sincerely believes what he does and he acts on it. And he's not even any furthermore, he's not denied the ability to do so. I mean, that's the interesting thing about some of these other characters. Like, for example, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, uh, is it Lieutenant Colonel? uh, Tall. Tall. Yeah. Uh, These these others get stuck faking it, pretending, right? Or they go on these sort of uh, just miserable quests to become something where there's a question about whether or not it's really good to, to want to be that to begin with. For example, like Kit, who says he always wanted to be a criminal. And there you just kind of get this sort of like almost conventional countercultural image, right? Where like Malik is mocking this idea that Kit wants to be James Dean, right? So what I mean, his self-image is this quest for this sort of kind of commercialized countercultural prestige that he wants to be like this Hollywood bad boy, right? But, you know, in a way, uh, Franz pulls it off. He's he, he does what all these other characters are unable to do. He sort of acts from his 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 innermost being, his inner thoughts, his inner desires, and and they're actualized. Whereas m- most Malik characters end up, I think, in a place of regret, regret, mm. or or mourning, or it's left sort of indeterminate as to what the future might hold. But there's never really typically any sort of clear resolution on which you can say, well, this person has been honest with him or herself. This is what he or she truly cares about most. And he or she has found a way to work it out. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing in Days of Heaven uh, with Abby and Bill, right? I mean, Bill is tormented uh, from the beginning. He doesn't like being poor. He has an idea of what he thinks he should be, right? Uh, there's a really nice scene with the farmer where he talks about how he always thought he was going to pull off some kind of great idea, or, right? He was going to make it. And he doesn't. And he's always struggling for power. And he ends up basically ruining his life by pushing others who might love him away, manipulating them. And it ends in tragedy. Uh, and it's, I think similar most the, in the case of most of the characters in the Thin Red Line as well. With yeah, maybe I, the with maybe sorry with maybe the potential exception now that comes to mind of Wit, but that's debatable. It's it's difficult to judge Wit because I think a lot of things that you can sort of ascribe i'm never i'm never quite sure how to deal with voiceover by the actor john d who plays Mm -hmm. it plays the character i think he's called train private train james jones is amazing because he just has all these one syllable (laughs) character names doll tall train wit welsh you know it's like jesus what's the matter you're running out of typewriter ribbon there jimmy Mm -hmm. i mean i've read in one of the essays in the thing that somebody was making the point ah it's actually train who is the voiceover and 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 was sort of comparing the voiceover to the character but i'm not even sure that's what malik is doing or what the film is doing I just think he likes the sound of his voice. I don't think, mm-hmm. that, I think it's just, I've got an actor and I'm going to use him for the voiceover and I'm going to use him to be this. And those two things are not necessarily linked. So in a sense, I think you couldn't, if you watch it and you think, oh, I thought the voiceover was wit. I I kind of think you're right. I think there is wit. And therefore all those ideas that he's saying are more like wits you know, ideas. I'll give you a, an example of why I think that's the case. Japanese soldier who's buried in the in the earth has been bombarded, and you hear a voice giving these beautiful lines about, you know, you think, you know, you too, you know, know too that I was loved, and it didn't mm-hmm. help me. Those lines are read by um, uh, the actor Ilias uh, Cotius, the um, who plays 
Stavros. Stavros? Staros. Staros. Staros, yeah, Captain, yeah, the Captain. Captain mm-hmm. Staros, exactly. But he's obviously putting on a Japanese accent. It's obvious it's obviously supposed to be the Japanese soldier thoughts. So just because the actor who is doing it is also the actor who plays Captain Staros doesn't mean you're supposed to hear that voice and say, why is Captain Staros putting on a Japanese accent? You're 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 not, you know, you're not supposed to notice that if if you like. But anyway, gosh, I've got to stop talking. But that's a that's a that I think that's a really interesting point about France. The scene that I would like to get your um, opinion on in terms of that hidden life is I, on my rewatch. I was I thought the amazingly delicate scene where he meets Fanny for the last time for his because that scene in a normal Hollywood rubric would be about her allowing him to make this sacrifice and him almost like asking permission as well. And yet it doesn't, it sort of does that, but it sort of doesn't do that as well. You know, it's, it's a really interesting balance and it's a very moving scene. I think it's a, it's a powerful scene. It's a tearjerker. I think most of the people in the audience, at least when I saw it, were crying at that point. And yes, you're right. So, I mean, the drawn philosophy here, I mentioned Kierkegaard and in the, in the volume, uh, the Kosi's, Martin Katerina write about sacrifice in that film. And, mm. and they draw on Kierkegaard for a, a reason, I think. The Kierkegaardian insight, uh, arguably, is that all relations with others are or ought to be mediated through each person's relationship with God. So it's like a triangle. It's a mediated relationship, right? And the idea is that uh, when I have something to do with another, I'm dealing with God, right? So it's a mediated relation. How, you know, m- my neighbor, right? How I treat my neighbor is reflective of my my own standing before God, how I view myself as being answerable to God. And so, I mean, if you read the correspondence between the, the actual Yaga's daughters, I, and I know Malik did this, it's clear that they were very, very devout Catholics. And, and that comes through in the film, although there are certain Catholic viewers who have actually quibbled about this and said that in a way, Malik sort of maybe downplays the extent to which uh, Franz was a devoted Catholic. But I mean, I don't know. I think it's still very apparent. This is his motivation, that 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 Franz is motivated by what he feels to be a duty to God. And the challenge for Franz is how to reconcile this apparently competing set of duties, his duty to God and then his duty to his family. And this happens throughout the film is that people will come to him and basically argue that what he's doing is wrong or unethical, maybe even selfish, right? Because he's abandoning, you might think, from a certain way of uh, viewing the situation, describing it, he's shirking his duty as a, as a father and a hubs, husband to provide for his family, right? And this is something that sort of torments him. He wrestles with it. And he searches himself to try to get clear as best he can why he's doing what he is and whether or not it's the right or wrong thing to do. And this is a very Kierkegaardian uh, question, this whole question about how does one reconcile duty to God and duty to neighbors, or particularly uh, duties that Kierkegaard calls a selfish love, right? Like your, 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 your spouse, your children, your friends, right? Partial, partial loves. By the time we come to the scene that you describe, I think Malik wants to show that Franz has, in a way, squared the circle. He's achieved the paradoxical. He's done it. 
He is genuinely committed to God. And yet at the same time, he's blameless in virtue of his, his standing to others, including his wife. And again, this has something I think to do with uh, Fani's own commitment to God. The idea that because they both are equally first and foremost committed to God, this is their way in which they're reconciled to the decision that he makes, that that she can support this decision because she's equally faithful to God and understands that his duty to God comes before what might be considered his duty to his own family. Now, of course, whether or not one as a historical matter actually thinks that what Franz did make sense, or whether or not one thinks from an aesthetic perspective, uh, Malik captured and told that story compellingly are different questions. But I think that from a sort of metaphysical, ethical, philosophical, religious point of view, that's what's supposed to explain what what, what Franz is doing. And I think it would it go some way to explaining why that scene is done in a way that, as you know, is different than how you might conventionally ex- expected Hollywood to have shown to have shown that 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 interaction or that final encounter between a husband and wife. Yeah, absolutely. That's so. That's, it's so interesting uh, in terms of the Kierkegaardian sort of perspective and that shift maybe into another into another sort of philosophical teaching. The other thing that that, that brings up interestingly, and I think this is something that a lot of people resist when it comes to Malik, is is the religious, which uh, which you've already pointed to in terms of hidden life. It's about a very religious person. It's about somebody who's inspired by their faith it's mm-hmm. interesting that it's looking at something which is very very political you know the rise of nazism and the well at that point nazism is a, at its at its historical peak but the film is much more is is looking at it through a religious key rather than a political key i mean franz is not joining a movement he's not handing out leaflets he's not trying to convert anybody he's not trying to say to the people around him hey let's all not swear allegiance he's just saying i can't and so, in a sense, it is a metaphysical rebellion. What about that stretching it out to the other films? How do you think Malik's religion? I mean, this is slightly complicated by the fact that how do we know? Do I mean do we know what what religion Malik is and what and how he's applying that to his films? All right, huge question, set of questions. No, and and these, and these are questions that I have been thinking about myself for years. Is partly why I was motivated to put the volume together because I wanted to try to commission people who thought about these questions as well to see what they say. So the first thing to say is like in the case of literature, there's always this question about authorial intent or the so-called death of the author is that what's the relationship between the author, he he or herself and, and, and the world of the text is like, you can't necessarily pick up a work of literature, read it and ascribe the views that are in the text, whether they're, they're, they're attributed to a particular character or not, and the author, right? And of course, there's the same, same sort of issue with the film. You can't always assume that when a film shows us something, this is meant to be taken as an, as, as an expression of the director's own views, right? Now, in the case of Malik, I think it's clear he's a Catholic. I don't know about his own personal religious spiritual journey but uh, my understanding is that he he was a catholic uh, i read somewhere an anecdote that at some point in the 80s uh during his hiatus in paris he actually converted uh martin sheen back to catholicism is what sheen has said 
Of course, if you look at a hidden life, I don't think it's at all coincidental that Malik was drawn to that that figure of Franz. It has something, I think, to do with Malik's own personal commitment to Catholicism. And religion and theology runs throughout all the films. And I mean, one of the things that he's always interested in is this issue of the fall or this issue of why the world is the way it is. Why is there evil? Why is there suffering? Which is a classic theological, philosophical question of theodicy. You think of the tree of life, it opens, of course, with a scripture from the book of Job. Now, in Badlands, that might be the most apparently non-religious or non-theological work of the film, uh, of his of his body of work. I mean, one way in which you might still see it as wrestling with sort of religious questions is again this this question of of modernity and human meaning, right? So, if you're living in mid twentieth century Middle America in the so-called wake of the death of God, with this sort of nihilism that had just birthed existentialism in Europe, and the counterculture movements coming, a lot of tradition at this point is gone, right? And the religious underpinnings of society are being eroded. And this leads to a kind of disorientation. So you might see Badlands itself as sort of indirectly already kind of working out these, these issues, which again become, I think, intensified much more explicitly in Days of Heaven. Because, of course, Days of Heaven is a turn of phrase, is a biblical, an allusion to a text from Deuteron Deuteronomy 11.21. And then, of course, you have this almost bizarre voiceover from Linda Manns, who has these very apocalyptic visions and themes where she's talking about the last judgment and the apocalypse and God not hearing evil people. And then, of course, uh, the, 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 the scene toward the end of the film, the fire on the farm, is you can see a kind of fulfillment of the the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? Where the evil and wicked, uh, the evil and good are separated, and so there's a, a apocalyptic imagery just shot through all of uh, days the, of heaven. The locusts as well. I mean, it's... exactly, yeah, exactly, which is reminiscent of uh, of Pharaoh in in the book of uh, Revelation. And then, of course, again, he's dealing with this question of uh, a sort of paradise lost. That everybody is is looking for this kind of peace or contentment or satisfaction that I think Malik wants to suggest is just unattainable in the world as we know it. And so it's 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 very much, I think, exploring this theological conception of the fall. And then we get that right off the bat, of course, in the thin red line. Because I think it's the opening shot is the, the shot of the crocodile entering the, in, in the middle of the water, which is kind of reminiscent of the snake in the garden. And then, of course, all the voiceovers from Wit and every Malik is very, very much wrestling with this idea of the fall and paradise lost. And what is life on the on the island before the war comes to it? And this fundamental ambiguity in nature. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That nature is simultaneously beautiful and, and, and wondrous and awe-inspiring. And yet at the same time, it can seem cruel, right? You think about Tall when he, when he speaks to Captain Steros and relieves him and says, look at these vines, right? The way they curl around the trees. So, and this is, this is the kind of the heart of the metaphysical heart of the debate between Welsh and Wit is this dispute about what's the nature of the world or what's the nature of nature itself. Welsh is sort of a pessimist. He says, well, you know, everything is just atoms in the void, man's dirt, and there's nothing after this. And Wit, Wit has a more metaphysical broadly christian point of view that there is an afterlife that there is immortality that things ultimately are good and just and beautiful despite the fact that they may appear otherwise so there again in the thin red line i think it's a deeply theological religious film uh to the wonder knight of cups song to song again in a way these films, I think, are very Christian in that they seem to be critiquing uh, human evil, sin, excess, debauchery. But at the same time, there is an element of Platonism or even Gnosticism. Of course, this is evident in the title of Knight of Cups itself with the tarot cards. Mm. And Knight of Cups particularly is, is, is in a way Gnostic in that Rick, uh, played by Christian Bale, is in a way trapped in what the Gnostics consider to be the prison of the visible material world. And so his, his idea is like when this is like, well, the soul, you know, once had wings, right? He's he's trying to remember this form of human existence prior to the one in which we know it. So what I would say is that uh, there are some of Malick's films, which I take to be pretty overtly, unapologetically Christian. Uh, and then others which are a little bit more ambiguous. Uh, although even in the films that I tend to think are uh, very much amenable to a straightforward sort of Christian reading, there are elements of this sort of uh, this 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 question about whether or not evil is still comprehensible. I mean, this goes in the thin red line. You almost get this view that you could find out of someone like Schelling, which is that evil is its own force that's mm -hmm. sort of co-equal a co-equal principle in the universe with good, right? And that this is sort of expl what explains the fact that life can be so bivalent, that it can be so wonderful and beautiful and majestic and yet so awful and terrible at the same time. Yeah, I, that, I, that's, that's fascinating. I think, I mean, I have... Um... Hmm... Well, there's, there's two two things I I, I think I'd, I'd like to ask about or, or sort of introduce into the discussion. One would be, um, I I do think the, uh, the the Christian religion is important here, and I do think there is that that it's it's the films themselves are asking us to address it. It's not that we're imposing it, or it's almost like you know you you almost have to willfully stop your ears you know i mean the, the voiceover is literally saying to you i you know i came to your door because of grief and because of uh of my mother and this is where, why i am here uh 
I mean, you have to be a, a, a willful twit to sort of say, well, whose door? Whose door is he going to? You know, <laughs> having said that, um, it's it seems that there is such a wealth of of sort of stuff going on there. We've already mentioned the philosophy as well, which which doesn't necessarily rest easy on the theology. Similarly, you've got a lot of Eastern influence, um, and and maybe you know um, uh, the, the relationship to nature, for instance, feels feels much more Eastern inspired by by eastern ideas than than it does by christian ideas um where where nature is largely sort of well you know there's the way of grace and the way of nature and nature's uh, you know a pain in the ass according to jessica chastain at the beginning and then you know she's got butterflies landing on her so yeah it it so I so I so first of all I'd ask about the Eastern aspect of it. And the second thing, well, well come on, I want to go into the weightless trilogy as well. Uh and, and so but I'll let's do the Eastern thing first. How how does that fit in? Right. So I mean, one thing is about the use of voiceover. I right. think it's always been obvious to me, and I always love this. It didn't put me off in the way that it understandably does for others who have different beliefs than I do, but to me, it's obvious that in many of his films, including the Weightless trilogy, the inner monologues of voiceovers are prayers. Uh, sometimes the characters themselves may not actually be thinking of what they're saying as words directed to God, but I think that Malik is showing or claiming that this is what's going on, even if it's unbeknownst to them. That's just one thing I wanted to mention. As for this, sure. this, this observation about the influence of Eastern religion, well, I mean, to go back to Heidegger, uh, Heidegger's later thinking, he ends up working out a view of human existence that he calls dwelling. And there were people who were reading this who said, oh, this sounds just like Zen Buddhism. And when he was told that, he said, okay, well, then fine, I guess this is Zen. He did, like, <laughs> they did and, my work. They've already right. done my work. Yeah, uh, yeah. And think about the final shot in... Uh, uh, the thin red line of the reed right. shaking in the wind. Um, yeah. it, it's what, it, what does that mean? I mean, so this is, I mean, think about, uh, someone like Paul Schrader who wrote the classic, uh, uh, transcendental style and film, this work that he wrote way back in his twenties. I think it was published originally in the sixties. Mm. And he, 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 he talks a little bit about, uh, about Zen in, in Japanese filmmaking. And Schrader's thesis is that, slow cinema, which I think you can say Malick in a way counts as a slow cinema the uh, director in certain respects, like Tarkovsky and others, there's this moment of like suspension, right? Or transcendence where, or this sort of overpowering, overwhelming, ineffable silence where a human being is sort of just put in a situation where there aren't words to describe the situation in which one finds oneself. And it's this moment of sort of absolute solitude or stillness or quiet, right? And you find this uh, arguably in certain film noir as well, uh, where the protagonist is sort of pushed to a point at which his life is no longer or her life is no longer communicable to others, right? And they just feel themselves in a set of circumstances that are so 
uh, overwhelming and overpowering that it's the transcendent as such that's made itself manifest. And uh, this is nameless, right? For Schrader, what makes it transcendental is that there's no name for it. And this is an element in Malik. And I think it's why he uses film. And it's it's something that artists are 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 famous for exploring in a way that other human endeavors can't. It's this 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 desire to express the inexpressible, to somehow mm. communicate what can't be communicated. And I'm not a too familiar with Eastern religions, but it seems to me that this is a sort of Eastern theme, right? This idea that there's something about what it is to be human, right, that can't be said. It just requires a sort of stillness or silence. And that's something that's coming through, I think, all of Malick's films. To go back to the point about Gilbert Ryle, the ordinary language philosopher, right? If Ryle's insight or presumed insight was that, well, we're going to resolve the questions of philosophy by showing that they're not really problems, by just analyzing linguistically how we speak and use our words, and nothing will be left over. In other words, there's no mystery. And of course, this is something that Malik would have deeply disagreed with. And I think this is what Malik is trying to get at. He's trying to plumb the depths of this ineffable dimension of the world, this sort of reservoir of meaning, which at the same time, paradoxically, is inexpressible. And so maybe that's a sort of uh, Eastern insight. It's certainly something that is in Malik throughout all of his work. And um, I think it's it, it's it's a definitive, unique, uh, and ultimately incredibly crucial component of the kind of image he gives us of the world is that we're always sort of just suspended over this 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 reservoir of silence, right? Mm. No, it just makes me think of Badlands. The very last shot is going through the clouds. You know, it's, it's, yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're... Well, well, how about the, well, just one more scene from that same film? What about the scene uh, at during during the getaway when uh, Kit is standing alone on the prairie, looking at the sunset, mm. the vista? I mean, you could ask yourself, right? Um, what does Kit see or what is Kit thinking about? I mean, so the easy answer is, well, he sees the landscape, he sees the prairie, he sees he sees the moon. But if you ask, like, well, what's the meaning of the shot? Like, what does Malik want us to see when we see Kit seeing that? It's difficult to know what we're supposed to see or to put into words. I think there's a, a fundamental ineffability to it, a sort of uncanniness. And I think that Malik is showing Kit himself looking in a kind of state of incomprehension mm. of what mm. he's viewing, right? And the idea of the shot is that you're, I think as a viewer, supposed to reach a point where you realize and become comfortable with the fact that there's no easy linguistic conceptual description of what the shot is about or what, what the landscape is. It's the nameless. It's this ineffable. It's this kind of what Schrader calls the transcendental. Mm, mm. right in the human experience um which i think has a sort of resonance with 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 zen and other sort of eastern traditions yeah absolutely i mean i would also point to the the, the 
you know, the prevalence of rivers and and mm. and waterfalls. You know, it's that idea of a, some a continuous cycle that is uh to some degree ungraspable. You know, it's it's, it's like you, you know, it's it's an image to go back to Tarkovsky sculpting in time, you know, it's a, a, an image of of time in action, you know. Um, interestingly, Schrader uh, was um, Malik's um, classmate in the AFI as well. Oh, I didn't know that. that. Yeah, yeah. So um, the two are connected. Although um, Schrader said Schrader gave one of the most damning criticisms of one of the later Malik's um, uh, films. I don't remember which one. It could have been any of the three. That, that people usually don't like, but it was basically, I think it was Knight of Cups and he called it um, uh, a, a, a stream of piss from an old man's dick. <laughs> and, 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 there's, and there's a bit of me that goes, that's a bit of me that makes that that's even better when you know that they were classmates, <laughs> that they were in the AFI conservatory, the very first class together. <laughs> Well, do you want to talk more about those movies? Because I mean, I have some thoughts about yeah, what absolutely. Say, but yeah, but I Absol- wanted to hear maybe what was on your mind about about those in particular. Yeah, absolutely, I do, and I it, and I think it, it 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 sort of aligns with what we've been talking about a little bit. There's there's one other point that came up in my head while you were talking, or, or as as a, um in terms of Hubert Dreyfus as well. I mean, Hubert mm-hmm. Dreyfus quite recently i think did a book called all things shining which obviously takes as its title a quotation from malik although he doesn't uh i don't think he actually cites malik in the book but it's very much about how do we look how do we how do we look at the world in a sort of sacramental way without necessarily using religion you know how do we look at the specialness of existence without necessarily having a, a, a theological structure in place. Um, it's a really good book, by the way. It's uh, well, well, well worth a read. But what I was sort of thinking about as well was how that 20-year hiatus, um, Malik sort of, people had careers in that 20 years. Uh, you know, people sort of like, people like, I don't know, Lynch was kind of done by the time Malik came out. I mean, he made some great films afterwards as well. I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, but, but, you know, they'd had the, almost the entire arc of their careers while he was just, you know, well, Friedkin would be a good example. That Chimino would be a good example of that sort of burnout that happened. And Malik comes back and he's kind of exactly the same. You know, he's, he's, he's kind of, I mean, yes, he's he's matured and everything, but in terms of some of these concerns and some of these things that we're talking about theologically and, and philosophically, it's like the 1960s. It's like these these are the thoughts and the the ferments that was going on in the 60s of let's put all religions together. You look at the New World, for instance, and I, you know, if that film had been made in the 1960s, when the script was written, by the way, it would be. Um, it, it, you know, you, you wouldn't marvel at it. You wouldn't go, oh, what a wonderful modern view. You would see it in as a tradition of a reconstruction, uh, um, a revisionist Western. You know, it's oh, okay. This is another way of telling the story. Um, although, obviously, uh, so so let's go, let's go on to the trilogy though, because I I, I know uh, I could go down endless rabbit holes here. Um, but the Weightless trilogy, and I know that that name is a little bit uh, contentious because he's 
he's not called it the Weightless Trilogy. I think it's it's Sinabink who called it, who who came up with that name, I think. I believe that's the case, yep. I think yeah. it was Robert. Yeah, and um and I see, right. So you were talking about earlier about how these films could be seen as religious because they're sort of uh talking about sin, uh, certainly in the case of say Song to Song and, and Night of Cups. Um I mean, to my mind, I didn't like these films when they when I first saw them. Or not that I didn't like them. I liked them, but I could feel myself trying to like them. Mm-hmm. You know, as I sat. I mean, I don't I saw To the Wonder in the cinema. The other two I didn't see in the cinema. Which in itself was indicative, I think, of uh, a sort of lack of enthusiasm on my part. Since I've been working on on Malik specifically this last year, I've rewatched the films. It well it must be six or seven times now, even even more. And I, I'm they're the they're kind of the most rewarding rewatches. You know, they've just gone so far up in my estimation. Um, while at the same time, I can totally see what people don't like about them because they're not. They don't. They're art films. They're, it's like John Luke Goddard. It's not. It's not for everybody. It's not meant to be. You, you know, Le Chinois was is not a popcorn movie. It's not like you know. After Christmas lunch, let's sit down and watch Le Chinois. You know, um, what what was your sort of first? Um, what hit you about these films first, and how did you? Uh, and and how did that idea? How did your thought develop? Well, I'm with you. I love them. Mm-hmm. Uh, although. At, at, like you again, the only one of them I saw in theaters was To the Wonder. Right. And and then I, I sort of just had gotten out of watching film around that 2015 through 17 period when Night of Cups and then Song to Song were released. So I just didn't see them in theaters. So I, I watched I watched Night of Cups like, you know, a couple of years later. And then I actually didn't watch Song to Song until maybe two years ago. Right. Um, so it took me a while well, to a get A long to time, that. yeah. So, I mean... One thing is, and I I want I wanted to say this at the outset of our discussion, and I, and I forgot to, but Malik is of course polarizing and he's divisive, and over the years and watching his films and talking to people who've watched his films, I mean I'm sure I'll forget uh, or omit a category here, but it seems to me like there's 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 definable camps of his audience, right? So you have you have a fairly large contingent of those who love his first two movies, adore his first two movies, think they're excellent films, his best, and then don't like anything else he ever did. Again, they just love Badlands, they love Days of Heaven, and that's it. And then I think you have another group of persons who love his early films, and then they love everything up to including the Tree of Life. And they see the Tree of Life as sort of the culmination of his artistic vision, the height of his powers as a director, probably his greatest film and then everything after that they see as not no good with the potential exception of a hidden life which they seem uh, see it maybe as a, a lesser return to form that's another camp then you have people who love all of his early work and then except for the tree of life and they think that things started really going wrong with the tree of life and that for the same reasons that some people consider it his greatest work, they think it's his worst. And then they see the the Weightless Trilogy as sort of just lesser versions of what was already going wrong in the Tree of Life, right? And then you have people such as myself who just love all of his films. <laughs> now, 
the with the with the trilogy i mean part of it too i think i have to confess is i'm biased or because i have biographically these films were important to me when they when they came out especially to the wonder because uh i'm a native californian but i lived for a number of years on two separate occasions for long stretches in texas mm. I, I lived in houston and so of course when the tree of life came out and they have the city shots of sean penn's character i recognized all of that and there was a really great, wonderful local art theater that I used to go see films at. And that, that's where I saw The Tree of Life. So I had this kind of nostalgic attachment to, to that element of Malik's work just because he's exploring this sort of Texas uh, that I know to some degree myself. And then with To the Wonder, when that came out, which I think it was released at film festivals in 2012 and then in April of 2013, I had just... Uh, gotten an acceptance to Oxford. And so I was about to leave for overseas and I was still in Houston and I was engaged to to my wife. And so I have nostalgia for that because we went to see it together. And so it was kind of a timely movie for us because we were both thinking about going to Europe and all the traveling we'd want to do. And she's traveled everywhere and she loves Paris. And so there was a little bit of that too, right? And then it's the same thing with the other movies. They're very romantic in a way. They're all about relationships. And uh, as someone who's married, and loves his wife, this interests me in a way that maybe those films wouldn't have when I had been single, right? So with all those caveats or qualifications in place, I still think that these films are really interesting, beautiful, and worthy of attention, while at the same time, I acknowledge, as you do, that there are a lot of people who just don't like them. I mean, you mentioned the, the, the Schrader quip, but I mean, the other thing people will say is like, well, you know, the Malik of the Waitlist trilogy, it's like just watching like a two hour long perfume commercial. And of course, I think Malik, he, he has a sense of humor. <laughs> I think it was in 2011 or 12 where he actually shot a perfume commercial. So he's aware of this, right? Um, part of it too, I think, is that the aesthetic that he developed, which used to be uniquely his own, there are lesser directors who have started doing this, right? So you see films all the time now that have these close-ups of you know leaves or wheat blowing in the wind and you look at it and you say oh this is malik but it's not malik because only malik can really do it one of the criticisms that people who don't like malik's films or at least don't like the films of his after days of heaven will say is they they, they say that his films lack a plot or that they lack character development i've never to be honest understood that criticism I've never been disoriented by a Malik film. I've never watched a Malik film and said, well, there's no story here. I could see someone being bored by the story, right? Like, for example, To the Wonder, it's very mundane in a way, right? So as he's, you're stuck in this small little Oklahoma town with this guy who's like a government worker. There's no explosions. There's no adventure. It's, it's in a way very banal. I could see being bored by it, but to say that there's no story... I just don't see it. Same thing, again, with the idea of character development. I mean, it may be that in these films in particular, uh, the characters don't evolve or deepen in the way in which they would in a classic Hollywood film. But I do think that they're relatable. And I do think that the situations in which they find themselves and the struggles they have and the interpersonal conflicts that sort of characterize the drama, the melodrama of the film are immediately accessible and pretty intelligible and i find them like i said captivating maybe other people don't 
So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the two major criticisms that you'll find in the literature from in film criticism and then sort of philosophical discussions of the, of the works is that, well, namely, they lack plot and they lack character development. I don't find that to be the case in either in any of those films, especially Night of Cups. I mean, I think Rick goes through a fair amount of, of development throughout the film. I mean, uh, the film ends in a way where you can't say, well, now everything's good and he, and, and, and he, he has all the answers that he was looking for. But I think this has something to do with Malik's realism, that he's interested in creating film that's responsive and disclosive of the human condition as we live it and know it. So it would be dishonest or insincere or artificial, I think, to tell a conventional Hollywood story where everything just gets tied up in a nice little bow at the end. That's not the way life is. I mean, the closest he comes, as I said before, to that sort of kind of resolution in one of his films is A Hidden Life. Mm. But then there again, I mean, it's not a satisfying ending in that we have a natural human inclination, I think, as admirable as we find Franz's sacrifice to be, to kind of, in a way, wish that he didn't have to die. That he could have just stayed at the farm with his family and that his life wouldn't have been torn apart in the way it was. So, in other words, even in that film, you're not going to get the kind of conventional Hollywood plot arc that you would in other films where audiences are left with this very determinate, uh, fully worked out conclusion where they can say, oh, you know, the good guy won or the bad guy lost. That's just not how life is. And I think Malik is very sensitive to, to, to making films that reflect the fact that that's not how life is. And, and those three films in particular, Night of Cups, To the Wonder and Song to Song, um, are very ambiguous. Uh, someone recently had just mentioned to me, and I, I can't vouch for this for sure because it's been a while since I watched the film, but apparently at the end of the film, when there's this question about whether the couple BV are, are, and, and, and his love interest are going to reunite, you're led to think that maybe they do, but apparently they're wearing the same clothing that they were at an earlier moment in the, in the story. So there's a suggestion from Malik that actually what you're watching is a memory of a time in the relationship where it looked like they were going to be reconciled or stay together. But in the actual linear chronology of events in the real world, that's not the case. The deeper I've got to know these films and the deeper I've understood about also how they've been made, how they've been put together, what they're based on, there is an element to which some of the philosophical freight or the, the limitations of the philosophical approach have, have, have occurred to me. So there was a, a writer, I think it was David Elric, who criticized Knight of Cups by saying, oh, it's like that horny undergraduate film student just made a movie and he's just filming, you know, all the pretty girls in the class. And there was a bit of me that thought, yeah, you that's it. You got it. That's it. Um uh but but that's but not that that was seemed to me closer than some of the people who really loved it and who I really admire as writers and I get lots of insights from them, but who were talking about, oh, it's the metaphysics of memory and it's this and it's that and the other. My When looking at the films now, I see the three of them together. If they have a thematic sort of um, through line, they're all about fucking, if you, if you excuse the 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 tactical use of uh 
of a vulgarism. But I mean, it. You. I think we need to get through here a little bit. That I mean, Malik has 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 suddenly become erotic. He's suddenly become. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a little bit of it in the New World, in a thin red line. There's a memory of the wife played by Miranda Otto, although ultimately it's a, the homoeroticism of a thin red line is is somewhat, you could say, is somewhat um, taken out in, in comparison to the novel, which actually... Yeah, it's, had... certainly, it's certainly much more present in the novel than it is. In yeah, film. I would argue that the two guys, Wit and uh, the other guy on the island, have a little bit of bare-chested, you know... Um, you know, there's something there. There's a little, there's a little hints and and stuff. But in the trilogy, he's addressing sex as a force, as a complicated thing. And that, and this is also where I wanted to push back a little bit on your your looking at them as a, as a sort of as sin uh, or as a, as a sort of denunciation of sin. Um, I think there's much more. I don't think he sees it that simplistically. I think he's. I think he is. His camera is tactile. He is involved in this, these relationships. Um, I mean, you get orgies in Night of Cups. You get a, a um, you in, into the wonder. The camera is obviously in love with Olga Kurienko and is is enraptured by her i mean that's one of the things that the film that, that a lot of people watching the film maybe get a little bit irritated by is is you the camera is much more in love with her than perhaps some of the viewers are mm-hmm. um so I, I it's there is an element where i love addressing these films intellectually i love analyzing these films i love writing about these films obviously but there's almost a bit where you've got to be careful not to sort of um you know, trip over your shoelaces because you're gazing. You're gazing so far into the distance. You know, looking at it, uh, and I think this is where the films. I think this is partly a fault of the films. Um, I, I I think that um, the 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 methodology and the f- language that he is pushing, and it is radical and it is experimental. And the thing that you talk about, why don't people see the characters and the plot? Well, it's because they don't see scenes. And it's because they don't see conventional plotting and it's because they don't hear dialogue. And that's how we're used to an exposition. And that's how we're used to stories. You're absolutely right. There's more story in Song to Song, which is often cited as the least story than there is in Days of Heaven. I mean, you have three characters in a menage a trois. Well, there, yeah, there's subplots and they, and they each and have triangles. Yeah. Exactly. Right. They each have right. have different relationships. Right. So it's, right. it's, right. it's right. almost schematic how much of a plot there is, almost soap opera So um so I see that 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 push, that experimental push sometimes gets in the way of of what could be a much more emotional experience and sort of fails to communicate stuff. And this is why I love the films much more having watched them five or six times, is because you learn the language and you and you and you're looking at it and you're going, oh, it's obvious that she dies at the end. I mean, to the wonder, she dies at the end. How can you not see that? Um but you know, even reading essays in 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 uh, anthologies, your own, in, there are you know entire readings of the film that don't 
get that she dies at the end. And I again, I'm not blaming the the the, the critics or the viewers or anybody else because the film isn't clear on that point. And so it's not really communicating it. Um, and I think that's where there is a, I like, again, I, I love the films, but I, I think that's where there is an actual, um, it's sort of like listening to Coltrane and I see what he's doing and he's, he, I hear what he's doing and how he's going about it. But at some point you just, I, I lost it and off you went, you know? Two things, at least, I want to say in response. Because <laughs> say you, as many you as you like. You so, much. So, so first of all, this issue about, I mean, when we talk about film, interpreting film, we say things like, well, the text of the film or, yeah. you know, the thesis of the film. So we have this tendency when, when, when analyzing film to talk about it in the way that we might a work of literature or philosophy as if it's a text. And I'm not saying we shouldn't, but... But it is interesting that that we find ourselves speaking that way to talk about the language of film being the image, right? Right. Uh, now, what Malik said, uh, and this I don't know when he said it in the context in which he did, but recently, like last week, when looking around the internet for news about the way of the wind, there was an article which, of course, is talking about well, when is this film ever coming out? And and Malik was quoted in there having said that uh, with the Weightless trilogy. He felt like those films were failures in the sense in which they weren't here. I'm paraphrasing because of uh, studio and commercial constraints that forced him to release the films before he felt like they were finished. And he said something to the effect that he was only halfway through working out how the language of those films actually works. So I mean, it's it's a question about what he means and 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 what would those films look like if he had taken as much time as he wanted to. Uh, that's just one thing about about uh, this this use of the image and dialogue and exposition in those films, like narrative structure. How is he telling a story mm. through the image, and in what regard does that work or not? It's 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 an open question. I personally, as a viewer, find it accessible. I mean. Like I said, I, I, maybe times where I was bored, but I never was disoriented or confused, right. which some, some people claim to be. So I don't know. Maybe that's just a dif different aesthetic taste or I don't know. That's one thing. The other thing is, yeah, um, I should qualify what I meant when I said that these films are uh, exploring or somehow condemning sin. I mean, in a way they are, right? So if you think about Fassbender's character, Cook, he's very much... Uh, a diabolical character I mean, he's supposed to be inspired by milton's satan yeah um what's going on there theologically is interesting because i had said that when you mentioned the point about there being potential eastern influences in malik's work which i think there is i mentioned as another example of a certain theological tradition that's not christian which could also arguably be pre uh discernible in his films is, is Gnosticism, right? Or Platonism or Neoplatonism. And I pointed mm. to Knight of Cups as an example of that. But one regard in which Malik is in a way anti-Gnostic is in his valorization of the human body and sex. So, I mean, uh, the Gnostics were notorious for thinking that the body was a prison, right that that materiality is inherently evil and that somehow the human freedom consists in transcending our 
embodied lived condition. And this is also what, what you find in certain Christian theologians, this sort of subcurrent or residue of Gnosticism, for example, uh, in Augustine, right? So when Augustine converts from Manichaeanism to Christianity, scholars have long observed that there's still a kind of fundamental antagonism in his thinking to the body and to the incarnate as such. Of course, theologically, he does not say this because he he carries with him all the, the, the theological doctrine of the church, right? So, but the point is that there's an ambivalence in his thinking, that when you read the confessions and when you read Augustine, uh, his view of original sin and concupiscence, he's very uncomfortable with human sexuality, with eros, right? And you find this again in, in certain reform thinkers, like for example, Calvin, who, if you were to quote him and not attribute the quotation, you might just think, well, this is like a uh, an ancient Gnostic. I mean, he's just very open in his institutes that he doesn't like the body and that the flesh is in some sense uh, evil or is subject to a sort of uh, evil evil principle, which is most exemplified or embodied in sexual desire. We're well, back to Paul Schrader. Right. But I but see... It's Mal coming from a Calvinistic thing. But I see Mal... Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, that's when he talks about uh, the French director, Robert Brisson, right? Mm -hmm. Um yeah, that there's a kind of Calvinism, uh, Gnosticism going on in, in Brisson's films. Um, exactly. But I don't see that in Malik for the reasons you just mentioned. They're very voluptuous. They're very sensual. I think what Malik is doing is he's 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 walking a fine line. Mm. So he's not endorsing this sort of platonic Gnostic conception of the human condition where embodiment is bad, where materiality is bad, where sex is evil. He's not making that point. But on the other hand, he is, I think, arguing or making the claim that uh, desire can be fraught, that sex can be dangerous, that we can destroy ourselves and others through the sexual impulse, right? Uh, through through um, bad decisions that we make when we're subject to that principle. Um, so I don't know. I mean, there, there's ambivalence, I think. And, and you see this, I mean, even in... Um, I mean, because you say, well, the eroticism of Malik is not as apparent in his earlier films as it is in these later ones. And I think you're right, because from a cinematographer uh, perspective, there's something about the use of the camera where it's like this voluptuous, I would say quasi-voyeuristic view, right? Like some of these scenes in To the Wonder, you're made to feel like you're uh, Marina's sex partner, that you're caressing her, that you're kissing her, right? That that you're not watching Neil have sex with her, but you are. Uh, you could say it's pornographic, but not quite. I mean, it's 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 not it's not pulpy, right? Yeah, but yeah. it's certainly erotic. But again, that same kind of theme is there even in uh, Days of Heaven. I mean, the whole the whole film, like you understand, as you noted, is is about jealousy in a way, right? It's a love triangle. And it's all about possession. And it's really difficult to make sense of Bill's uh, motivations and Bill's decisions and Abby's and the farmers apart from the fundamental role that sex plays. Um, and it's more repressed at that time in that historical area in the 1916 uh, Texas panhandle. And I think that Malik is showing this though too. Like this is the kind of interesting thing about Malik is I think he's always, he's trying to show that in a way human beings are the same, no matter what 
situation they find themselves in. So in a lot of ways, I mean, the love triangle, the story he's telling in a work like Song to Song is reminiscent of what's going on in Days of Heaven. So whether you're considering a 1916 love triangle, the turn right right around the time of World War One and the Texas Panhandle, or you know, uh, a music festival in Austin with musicians, very similar dynamics going on in both those situations. And again, I would say that what Malik is 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 showing is that sex isn't bad, the body's not bad, but it leads to suffering, and it leads to to problems. And it leads to strife. And, and and these things are, I think he wants to claim, unavoidable. I mean, I don't know too much about his own pers- uh, personal relationships, but he's been married multiple times. So I think there's also clearly a, an autobiographical dimension to his exploration of the nature of, of love and possession and jealousy in, in these films. Going back as far back as The Thin Red Line, like you mentioned, uh, the character, uh, the GI who's always reminiscing about his wife who it turns out has been unfaithful to him the entire time he he's deployed mm, yeah absolutely i mean even in badlands i, I um you're, you're absolutely right in badlands i i think the sex is very it's kind of very funny because they're the <laughs> you know it's sort of like is that what it was all about yeah, right. and, yeah, and, that, and, that's what every that's what you, everyone's talking about yeah yeah, yeah. And, and you don't even know if they've even had sex because she doesn't know what it is so she, she could be literally right by saying you know oh is you just pull it out and and that's it or or what you know so we're not we're not party to that um uh also i mean he does take out um i mean this is partly this is all to do with badlands in terms of the his whole he kind of rinses that story you know he sort of rinses off the grit um and it's i'm not saying that he romanticizes it because i don't think he does i think the violence is it's really well well it is really interestingly shocking even today when you watch it it's still it's still but he does take off bits that i think would just unambiguously make charles starkweather into a you know a monster you know starkweather killed a baby starkweather uh you know raped some of his victims and so it, it, he gets rid of that sort of aspect of it, which are too too would push it too much into the true crime sort of uh, genre that he's he's playing with, but but not trying to get too deep into. Um, I honestly, I really could talk to you for two hours, Stephen, but um, but I'm not sure. I'm, I'm I'm thinking of I'm thinking of you, and I'm thinking of our listeners as well. So I'm gonna I'm I'm for I'm gonna force myself to ask you a final question. But hopefully you'll come back on the podcast and we can talk more about this uh, in the future. But final question would be: I've got to ask you for a recommended book, uh, and that, just as a introduction to the question, most people don't give just one answer anyway so don't feel worried if you've got more than one right so i mean one book i recommend for philosophically inclined film enthusiasts would be the schrader book which is a classic it's it's probably something most of your audience has already read but in case someone hasn't i'd say that's essential reading the transcendental transcendental style in film um my personal favorite from that genre is the tarkovsky book Sculpting in Time, which you mentioned as well. So I would highly recommend either the, the Tarkovsky or the Schrader. If we're talking about more contemporary film theory from a philosophical perspective, it's hard to go wrong with any of the work by Robert Pippin. He has a really great film noir book 
and uh, uh, which I highly recommend. But if we're going to focus specifically on Malik, then uh, I would recommend Robert Sinnerbrink's 2019 title on on Terrence Malik. I think uh, Sinnerbrink really broke some ground with his emphasis on uh, transformative experience mm. and the way in which Malik's films aesthetically are functioning in a way to get audiences to take a sort of introspective turn that will potentially transform themselves, not just as viewers of film, but as human beings outside of the cinema. Excellent. And I will add to that, of course, Life Above the Clouds, Philosophy in the Films of Terence Malick, a fascinating collection of, uh, of, and a really broad collection of of writers and thinkers um, which which I absolutely devoured. So thank you for that. And thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. For your next trip, elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to Quince.com/trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.